This is Undark. We're a new magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society. And we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to Episode 2. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story this week, a close-up look at a once illicit substance that is fast rising from underground. The substance is marijuana. And science writer Brooke Burrell traveled to Washington State to explore the growth of the legal cannabis industry. Her guide was a scientist who seems to understand better than anyone else the opportunities and dangers that come when an illegal drug is suddenly made legal. Brooke, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell us about this article. The uh, title is Scientist Pot Farmer, which are three words I don't believe I've ever heard in combination. What's it all about? Yeah, so there has been this ongoing discrepancy between federal and state laws surrounding cannabis as more states have legalized cannabis uh, in the last few years because it's illegal on a federal level and the states are saying, no, well, but here it's legal. And one of many issues that has sort of cropped up because of this is how those plants are actually grown. So usually in agriculture, the way that pesticides work is that on the federal level, the Environmental Protection Agency oversees uh, labeling these things and approving what can be used under what conditions, on what crops. And cannabis, because the federal government considers it a drug and not a crop, they, they don't have any approved labels for pesticides for cannabis, whereas the states, of course, now are considering it a crop because they're growing it and selling it or, you know, people within those states are doing that. And so they're they're having to figure out how they can control pests on their farms in a way that's both legal and safe. And there's not a lot of science out there to, to help guide them on that. Tell us about Alan Schreiber, the subject of your profile. Who is he and how did you find him? So Alan Schreiber is a scientist in Washington state who uh, has an interesting background that's put him in a good position to help, at least with part of this problem. Uh, he, he worked for the EPA for a number of years. He was a researcher at Washington State University. His background's in entomology and toxicology. And he has his own research farm that he's had since the 90s where he does pesticide research for big companies and small companies. He farms there as well. And he has seen this problem going on in his state and decided to actually, even though he voted against legalizing cannabis in his state, he decided to get a license to grow cannabis and start his own research on that to help fill in some of the gaps. And it happened because his role in his community is to help farmers, you know, control pests. And they call him all the time. And he farmers started calling him, asking him how to control things on cannabis. And he realized that there was a real need for that kind of information. And uh, Mr. Schreiber's concern is uh, not whether uh, marijuana uh, has beneficial effects uh, when used medicinally, but what happens to the plants while they are being grown. So uh, let's talk about that. Yeah. And I mean, it's a good point, too, because there is a lot of research going on on the medical impact of cannabis, and some is stronger than other research, and some there's some areas that have no research at all as far as the effects on certain ailments. But regardless of that, a lot of people do think that these plants are helping them, so they're taking them as medicine or recreationally. And so his goal and many others' goals are to make sure that those plants are grown in a safe and proper way to make sure that there isn't going to be any harm that comes to people or to the people that are growing these plants uh, while they're being produced. And uh, this is kind of the heart of the matter, right? Because when you grow marijuana, as when you grow anything else for agriculture, you have to deal with pests. 
Yes, there hasn't been a crop like this, at least in my knowledge, uh, sort of unprecedented, where on a federal level, it's not considered an agriculture, it's not considered agriculture, it's not considered a crop, it's a drug. Uh, but yes, any time you're farming or gardening or anything like that, you're going to have to deal with pests. And uh, there are a number of ways you can do that. Of course, you could go about it organically, you could go about it conventionally, but regardless, there are going to be potential pesticides that are used to grow those crops. And that's where this problem is that that is the heart of this problem, where there aren't any that are technically uh, approved by the EPA, which sort of oversees all of the labeling for pesticides on a federal level. But there's not a lot of guidance or there's sort of growing guidance for the actual farmers on what to use and what they can legally use. And the things that work the best on the kind of pests that they have are things that they probably shouldn't be using and they're overusing them and don't necessarily have all the, you know, training to, to use these products properly. That's a blanket statement. Obviously, some people know more than others, but that is a problem. What are the kinds of pests that afflict the marijuana crop and uh, what kinds of measures do farmers take against them? Sure. Well, there are several, but the main ones you hear about are spider mites, which are these little mites uh, that can infect the plants and suck, you know, suck their juices out. Um, there's powdery mildew, which is a plant disease that can be really hard to control. Insects like aphids also can be a problem with cannabis. And, you know, they're controlled uh, with insecticides or in controlled with fungicides. Uh, but the problem is some of those, even though the products they're using might be approved for other crops, they're not approved specifically for the conditions that cannabis is grown in. One product, for example, that's used to treat powdery mildew is called Eagle 20. That's the name you would find on, on a label. And that is approved for uh, treating powdery mildew and funguses on other crops you might eat. But when you light it, it actually turns into a form of cyanide, which you don't necessarily want to smoke. So it's not really for, uh, you know, cannabis that you would be smoking. Um, so they're running into problems where maybe the products that help them control the pests aren't the right things to be using for this particular crop and this particular in how it's going to be consumed by the, the people buying it. When people take medicinal marijuana, uh, they're ingesting an oil, right, that is uh, made with a process that that kind of concentrates the product. And doesn't that also have the effect of concentrating whatever pesticide residues may have been on the leaves? Yes, um, probably. In a lot of cases, so what they're doing when they're concentrating these oils is they're trying to concentrate the THC and other cannabinoids into a higher concentration. And in some cases, yes, that's what uh, someone with a medical, you know, use for cannabis would be actually ingesting. Uh, and in a lot of cases, it probably won't be every single pesticide, but the pesticides that are fat soluble, if I remember correctly, those are what are going to be concentrated to much higher levels as you concentrate the THC. So some of the numbers that have come from some reports that various scientists have done on this have suggested it might even be a 10 to 1 uh, concentration ratio of those pesticides in those products. You would think that, given the health issues that, that you're describing, that the federal and state and local public health agencies would be very concerned about what people are putting in their bodies. I mean, after all, that's uh, the job of these agencies. And yet the uh, response from government has been rather scattered. What is going on here? Well, as far as the federal government goes, their hands are a bit tied because cannabis is a Schedule One narcotic. So it, that's the highest level of scheduling. 
And there, you know, there have been there has been a little bit of movement. The EPA, for example, uh, has decided that they will allow states to apply for these things called special local needs licenses. And that they basically have to pull data together and show them we want we have a special need to use pesticide X on cannabis. And here are the reasons why. And here's the data we have showing that that's going to be okay and safe and whatnot. And then they can allow them, even though it's not technically labeled for that use, they can allow them to use that in that state. Um, but it took a long time for them to get to that point, And it's it's a little difficult because of the scheduling. As far as the state governments go, they're working towards getting, you know, things in place to to regulate this a little bit more and to have a better system in place. But they've never dealt with this before. Normally, it's the federal government that sets all of this up. And so this is they've never had to take a crop and consider it this way at the state level. And because these were in Washington and in Colorado and in Oregon, I think in Oregon as well, these were voter initiatives. These were, you know, ballot votes. And the states, I think, have been kind of scrambling to catch up with that that vote and to put things in place. Let's uh, get back to Alan Schreiber, your scientist pot farmer, and talk about the farmer part. He actually has a plot where he's growing marijuana, right? He does. He has a research farm that he's had since the 90s where he does various research on crops. And he also actually farms and sells the produce to grocery stores and farmers markets and that sort of stuff. His cannabis farm that he started actually couldn't be on that same land because the the county that he lives in has a moratorium on growing and selling cannabis. So he had to find a different location. It's about an hour and a half or so away from his original farm. And where he's growing the cannabis is, I think they call it a cannabis campus. Uh, so it's a fenced-in area with several plots uh, for different companies to to use. So you have a lot of, it's a collective, basically. You have a lot of different farmers and growers working on the same area, but they each have their own individual plots that are behind these locked gates and have security cameras and that sort of stuff. Yeah, you you mentioned that a couple of the, the big state universities are very reluctant to get involved in agricultural research that, uh, that is normally part of their mission uh, because they're dealing with an illegal substance. Well, there's also another issue of just the agricultural schools, the land grant schools sort of contracting and not having as much, you know, as many resources to do this kind of research at all. And then on top of it, uh, yes, it's an illegal drug. They don't want to jeopardize their federal funding. Uh, so at Washington State University, for example, which is a land grant school in Washington, you know, they've been told that they're not to work on cannabis until there's a clearer reconciliation between federal and state laws. There's uh, one further wrinkle here, which is quite fascinating. And that is, you know, if you're growing potatoes or something and your crop is attacked by uh, potato mites and you use pesticide and it doesn't work out or, or you use too much, you can just throw away the potatoes. How does, how does that work out with marijuana? This crop is worth so much more. This is, you know, so much more than other crops. It's just the value here is definitely, uh, you know, giving people incentive to not throw that crop away if it gets infested or or what have you, and they have to spray something sort of last minute. I mean, a lot of pesticides, too, you're supposed to use them in certain time frames before you harvest and this sort of stuff. And there's just more incentive here to cut corners in order to save this crop because it's so much money. 
So this stuff is getting onto the market um, essentially unregulated, even though it's uh, it's legal in some states to consume marijuana for medical purposes. In a few states, it's legal to uh, consume marijuana for recreational purposes. Uh, the number of states uh, in those categories is growing, but still, it's kind of the Wild West out there, isn't it? It definitely is. And I'd say, so in Washington state, I'm not as familiar with the other states, but they are trying to deal with the pesticide issue. It's perhaps taking longer than some folks would like, but they, as of July 1st, they're going to require at least the the cannabis that's being grown under medical licenses to go through a pesticide screening. There are going to be 13 pesticides that are illegal to use on cannabis that they're going to screen for. And then they're also going to screen for a couple of other pesticides. The state has sort of put together a list of pesticides that they say are going to be okay to use on cannabis. It's not technically uh, approved by the EPA, but the way the labeling works is that the label will tell you where you can use it and what sometimes what crop you can use it on and under what conditions. And there are some labels that don't specify the crop, but might specify uh, the conditions it's grown in and cannabis falls under that. So they, they sort of found this loophole to make this list of uh, approved, of state approved uh, pesticides. Most of those are these sort of organic materials like cinnamon oil or you know, soap, stuff like that. So they aren't as effective against the kind of pests that they're dealing with. So this summer, July 1st, the Department of Health in Washington state, they are going to start requiring that all medical cannabis uh, be tested for 13 illegal pesticides that are not on that list. And then an additional two pesticides that are on that list to make sure that they're being used within the limits uh, that they're allowed to use. So maybe this will all get worked out in uh... 20 or 30 years. Meanwhile, people are consuming uh, this stuff and not really knowing what they're getting. Yeah. I mean, and also, you know, if the uh, DEA reschedules cannabis, that could also completely change things because that would perhaps, depending on how they schedule it, uh, make it easier to regulate the pesticides on a federal level, which is how it's done for every other crop. Brooke Burrell is a New York-based science writer and a contributing editor at Popular Science magazine. Uh, she is the author of the book Infested, How the Bedbug Infiltrated Our Bedrooms and Took Over the World. And this year, she's a fellow at the Alicia Patterson Foundation. Brooke, thanks so much. Thank you. Joining us now is Paul Rayburn, our science news media columnist and leading consumer of chocolate milk. Hey, Paul. Not anymore. Not after that last study. Hi, David. How are you? <laughs> Good, thank you. So uh, let us, uh, our, our listeners have no idea what we're talking about. Let's uh, start by following up on the, that uh, University of Maryland chocolate milk fiasco, which we talked about on the podcast last month. Sounds like it's sort of been resolved. Yeah, just to remind people, what happened was University of Maryland put up a press release on its website claiming that a certain formulation of chocolate milk could protect young athletes against concussions. It's an incredibly great story. The only flaw in the story was that it happened not to be true. And what's worse, when various reporters, notably Andrew Holtz and Earl Holland at healthnewsreview.org, when they and others pointed out the problems with this release, Maryland astonishingly left it up there. 
And it was not until just a few days ago that the university concluded an internal investigation and pulled the release down and didn't quite go so far as to apologize, but acknowledged that there had been problems at every step of the process that led to the posting of that release. So it wasn't a completely satisfying ending, but it was nice to see that that thing was taken down. In future, I would advise, uh, not that anybody asked me, but I'm going to offer advice anyway, uh, University of Maryland and other universities, if questions are raised about a release, take the darn thing down while you try to sort it out. Don't leave it there. It was just phony information that could have really, you know, influenced decisions by a lot of young athletes and their parents, and that's not a good thing. This is kind of a nice segue into the main part of this segment, which is you write at some length about John Oliver, who I always thought of as a comedian. But So why are you writing about him? Well, John Oliver, many people be, before me uh, have, many people besides me, have pointed out that John Oliver is really a journalist, as well as a comedian. He's a funny journalist. But he takes on very serious issues, and others have pointed out that he acts as a journalist as well as a comedian. What I tried to say is that, yes, that's true, but he does it in a very different way than Jon Stewart did it and Stephen Colbert did it. What Oliver does is extensive reporting. So uh, he did a piece last year on drug marketing to doctors, in other words, pharmaceutical companies trying to persuade doctors to prescribe their drugs. And this was a 17-minute segment. This wasn't just a few minutes of Jon Stewart mugging at some politician's video clip. This was a highly reported segment that really dug into the issue in a way of an investigative report. Some of it seemed to be original reporting. A lot of it was just culled from the web. But all the same, it was done so with a great deal of intelligence, and he came up with a very strong, very hard-hitting piece criticizing drug companies and doctors for this practice. Really quite extraordinary, and I think deserves to stand side-by-side with any other piece of science journalism we'd want to look at. Yeah, maybe we could listen to a clip of it now. So essentially, pharma reps are like the cast of Grey's Anatomy. They're young, they're hot, and they have virtually no medical training whatsoever. (laughs) Now, now, to be fair, most doctors will probably take that into consideration. The problem comes when some don't. I even had one physician um, who would often bring out a patient chart. If she was having a difficult patient or whatever the case is, she'd bring out a patient chart and be like, okay, Kathleen, I've tried this, I've tried this. What do you recommend here in terms of tweaking? And I'm sitting here thinking... I'm a political science major. You're asking me, you know, what to prescribe for this patient. Yeah, exactly. Because the only question a poli-sci major is really qualified to answer is, was it weird having to move back in with your parents after college? (laughs) And, uh, Paul, I like like what you had to say about this classic Oliver, solid reporting, judicious aggregation, and loopy observation skillfully entwined so that viewers might not notice that they're consuming a mounting narrative punctuated by evidence. And evidence, of course, what we're all about here. Right. This is evidence-based comedy, I think we would call (laughs) John Oliver. Um, There's another aspect of it that you get into, which is this uh, is what you might call advocacy journalism, opinion journalism, certainly different from Uh, what we did uh, when I worked at the New York Times. Uh, Can you talk about that a little bit? Are we we becoming more of an advocacy nation? Well, in writing about John Oliver, I I really started to think about that question. And, And the short answer is, I think we've 
always been more involved in advocacy than we cared to admit to ourselves. So look at traditional media and go back before the web and before everything started to be turned upside down and redefined. And you can find, for example, you know, if somebody were to do a story on big contributions to political candidates, somebody doesn't do a story on big contributions to, to political candidates defending the practice. Almost every story about that subject, to take one, uh, is, is at least implicitly critical of the practice. And I think the reason is that even in traditional journalism, what we often did say to ourselves was our allegiance belongs to our readers. What we do is for our readers, our podcast listeners, our viewers, those are the people we work for. And and indirectly, those were the people who were paying us. So that was what we said. And in fact, that was not objective journalism. For a traditional media to do a traditional story on marketing of drugs to doctors, very few of those stories are going to claim that that's a good thing. Okay, because we we, I think, inherently feel that these kinds of payments and marketing practices that are invisible to us are probably not doing us any good. So where I came to at the end of all of this was I don't think there's much like objective journalism that's left. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll say that uh, most journalism takes some kind of point of view, even if it's a rather you know, blatant and obvious point of view that misuse of big political contributions is a bad thing. It's still a point of view. So I think we need to redefine things. We can't blame the new media for destroying objectivity. I think it's never been quite what we thought it was. And so I hope people will take a look at the column because I really try to explore this issue and get people to think about it. Let's talk a, a little bit about uh, the story of uh, lead contamination in the water in uh, Flint, Michigan. Uh, the way that came out is is very interesting. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so that was not done by traditional media. It also was not done by new media or internet media. It was done by an interesting arrangement. The American Civil Liberties Union, clearly an advocacy organization, hired an experienced investigative reporter and said, we think there are problems going on in Flint. There's something funny here. Dig around and see what you could find. And he broke the story. Now, this is a very interesting thing. And it, again, speaks to that question of whether this is objective journalism. I would argue that all, virtually all of the coverage... No, I'm going to take away virtually. All of the coverage of the Flint water crisis has had an extreme point of view. And the point of view is lead in water is a bad thing. We don't want that. Now, somebody might have done a story, I suppose, and said these were public officials struggling to try to make the best of a bad situation. They had severe budget constraints, and they had to allow this situation that led to the lead in the water because they had no choice, and do a very somebody could do a very sympathetic story like that. I don't think you're going to read that story, and I don't think our readers or our listeners are very interested in the sympathy with the people who created this horrible situation. So again, it's a situation where we think we're reporting objectively, and and you know we should of course collect comments from the public officials responsible for the situation and interview them and see what they have to say. But the stories that we write are going to say lead in water is a bad thing, and these guys did a bad thing if their actions were responsible for it. Okay, but uh, the organization that 
broke this story was the ACLU. So, you know, we're talking about a uh, an advocacy group. John Oliver is a comedian journalist, clearly with a point of view. What about uh, traditional news organizations like the New York Times and CNN? Are they going to be under more and more pressure to deliver news with some kind of edge? Well, I think there are two questions there. One is, do we want to preserve that kind of journalism that we've had traditionally for many, many years? The other is, will we be able to? I think the second question is a difficult one. I I don't think all of the traditional news organizations will fade away, but a lot of them already have, and more of them will in the years to come. But yes, of course, there is a place for the traditional news organizations. I just think that, you know, the, the whole change in journalism over the last 10 or 15 years has prompted me to rethink what we were doing before that. And and it, I think it gives us a clearer notion of what objectivity is in journalism, what it was, what it is, and maybe what it should be. Well, I'm sure we will talk about this again and again as we uh, come back to your reporting on science and the media. Uh, Paul Rayburn writes uh, the science and media column for the cross-sections part of Undark. Paul, thanks a lot. Thanks, David. See you next time. Let's talk about carbon dioxide, colorless, odorless, and inescapable byproduct of progress and prosperity. It's changing the planet, and not for the better. But these changes are happening on such a long time scale, decades, even centuries, that they're hard for human beings to fathom. In a new film series for Undark, documentarian Ian Cheney is trying to wrap his arms around the phenomenon. This month, we feature a portion of Ian's series titled The Measure of a Fog. So one of the most important things that I think we've really learned from our research over the years is how do you bring this issue home? That's Anthony Lazarowitz, director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Climate change is the policy problem from hell. I mean, you almost couldn't design a worse fit with our underlying psychology or our institutions of decision-making for this particular problem. As environmental challenges go, climate change seems to be in a league of its own. And in many ways, it's a matter of scale. Climate change demands that we imagine a phenomenon that is larger than ourselves, both in space and time. And you could argue that as creatures, as animals, who evolved in highly localized landscapes, worrying about how to make it through another week, or at most, another winter, our imaginations are relatively limited in scope. Here's the simple question. What's the first thought or image that comes to your mind when you hear the words global warming? Now, I've asked that of a nationally representative sample of Americans over and over and over again. And the first thing that comes to many people is images of melting ice. How many people live on the shores of the Arctic Ocean, live in Antarctica, or live next to a melting glacier? And so what it does is those images also reinforce the false perception that climate change is far away. That's partly distant in space, that this is something happening at the poles or far away, maybe in a developing country, but not where I live. 
and also the sense that it's distant in time. The challenge of imagining climate change, a planet-wide phenomenon that stretches across an enormous physical scale, is compounded by the challenge of imagining timescales that outlast human lifespans. If we were to stop burning fossil fuels, uh, something like 80% of the CO2 we've added to the system will get taken up by the oceans. But that'll happen over thousands to tens of thousands of years. That's Daniel Schrag, a geologist at Harvard University. So we have to understand that we are actually affecting the Earth's climate, not just for a century or two, we are fundamentally changing the Earth's climate for tens of thousands of years. Uh, and frankly, we don't think about those timescales very well. You know, economists would say anything even 100 years out is worth nothing because of discounting. Um, well, the question is, if we are changing the surface of the Earth in a profound way, not just for a few generations, but for tens of thousands of generations of humans, uh, does that matter? Climate change may demand a new kind of perspective, a great stretching of our minds to confront a phenomenon that seems distant, but in reality surrounds us, as insidious and ubiquitous as the carbon gathering around us like a fog. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Take a minute to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm David Corcoran for Undark. <laughs>